Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Shai Dromi and Samuel Stabler about moral minefields, how sociologists debate good science. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Hey, Thank welcome. Thanks for having us. Uh, this, I mean, this is a fantastic book. It's incredibly interesting. I, I think it speaks directly to this moment we found ourselves, not just actually in, in sociology, but across uh, the social sciences. Um, and I, I think it's going to be quite important, actually, not just uh, in, in the States where you've drawn lots of your uh, examples from, but, but also actually more, more globally for sociology and, and social science. And, and I guess the place to start with the book is, um, I mean, the obvious question is like, why have you written it? But I'm really interested in why have you written a book about morality and sociology kind of right now? Why at this uh, moment? Yeah, great question. And yeah, thanks again for having us on, Dave. Yeah. Uh... I mean, so it's interesting you bring up this cross-Atlantic kind of connection because in part the the book take, took shape actually like on, uh, you know, an engagement. One of our advisors was working hard on trying to bring critical realism to America. Uh, and so in some ways the book was like, you know, somewhat inspired by that. But, you know, the the broader, you know, kind of more obvious answers are are that, you know, Increasingly, sociologists talk about their work as justice oriented. So in the in America, right, there have been these presidential addresses at the ASA by Alden Morris and Mary Romero and others that call for sociology to be explicitly political or activist in its orientation. And yeah, across the pond, you see this, I think, with a lot of the critical realism debates, um, but also some of the other debates about, you know, just kind of morality and social science more broadly. Um, and, and then, you know, this has led to, and kind of was shaped, I think also by me and Shai in grad school, right. Which was, you know, this question of, you know, what kind of discipline is sociology going to be? What kind of sociologists are we going to be? I mean, I think you were saying before we got on, like the, the book seems very collaborative and it is, you know, it's a long format kind of discussion between me and Shai about what is this thing that we are now committing our lives to? And then I think last, you know, that, you know, there were these huge public facing controversies 
which kept kind of wrangling the discipline and, you know, kind of wrangle the discipline over and over again. So people would have these debates. It would become very clear that, you know, on the right, there would be this whole debate about how social science has lost its bias. And on the left, there would be all these arguments about how social science uh, needs to be even more political, you know, that, you know, these are, are uh, kind of proof that the social sciences have political impact and therefore need to be taken seriously. And our book, you know, and I, I think the project was really stemmed from this idea that, you know, good social science is somehow a balance. It's somehow combining these different elements so that, you know, your work speaks both publicly and scientifically, that it is both valid and true and morally worthy. I don't know. Shai, what do you say? No, I agree. I agree. I mean, this, this, um, we both um, got our PhDs at a time where these conversations were just at the fore. And part of it is because um, the, the handbook of the sociology of morality had come out in uh, 2013, edited by Steve Vasey and Steve um, uh, Hitlin. And I think it really sparked kind of an efflorescence of work on morality in sociology that I think was just was just kind of cresting when we really got into conversations about this book. I'm quite interested to know how you actually cut into these d- debates. I think Sam's given a really good overview of, uh, or kind of introduction to the kind of contours uh, of, of where the debates are and, and what individual controversies um, and, and interventions have, have kind of driven uh, the uh, resurgence of interest in morality and sociology and in, in social science. But obviously, you know, books need frameworks, they need approaches. Um, and I'm interested to know what your sort of, I guess, kind of pragmatist approach uh, is in the book. Yeah. Um, so I think that the, um, two, of our, two, two of our main points is that sociologists, you know, just like everyone else, are you know, critical and generally aware um, actors in a sense that they can... Um, understand broad abstract questions of morality um that they have the critical capacity to critique others um you know others work others conduct and so on and um um that and that this is this is in a way not dependent on their status in the discipline on their background and so on that this at, at the end of the day all of us have um some tools to criticize others um, and we, um, this, this kind of brought us into um, the sociology of Luke Boltansky and uh, Laurent Teveno, what's normally referred to as the sociology of uh, critique, uh, as well as to uh, cultural sociology um, that uh, Michelle Amant and uh, uh, Jeff Alexander exemplify that really emphasizes creativity and action in thinking through um, conundrums about, you know, what's good to do, uh, what's right to do, and uh, so on. Um, and uh, our approach has been to really follow um, um, sociologists' meta-commentary. They're a commentary about what, why are we doing the research that we're doing, um, and then see what, the, what sort of moral logics they use. How do they uh, justify what they're doing as contributing, you know, to sociology, but also to to society, uh, and what sort of cultural tools they develop in the process. I'm interested to know, I guess, 
And we're going to come on to these individual, uh, what would we call them, like kind of case studies of uh, different bits of sociology, different uh, controversies, different um, subfields, but also, uh, as you, you've kind of outlined, the sense that sociologists have particular frameworks, approaches, um, orientations, comes through really strongly at the start of the book when you talk about moral rep- repertoires. Um, and you've got various kind of ex- examples of, of, of different moral repertoires that sociologists might use. And, and, and maybe I'll come to you on this, Sam. I, I'm, I'm interested to know, I guess, both some examples of them, but but also where this idea of a moral repertoire kind of extends or or fits in um, to, to what Shai was saying about the kind of pragmatist uh, Boltanski Teveno. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So the moral repertoire language we draw uh, a lot from Michelle Amont's work, right, who builds on this broader notion of kind of culture uh, and repertoires as a means of thinking about culture. So Lamont calls uh, repertoires kind of the supply side of culture, right? They provide individuals with certain logics, certain codes, certain terms, certain ways of behaving uh, that allow to individuals to act in a culturally kind of meaningful way. And so you know, for our purposes, when we think about, you know, what is a moral repertoire and what are these repertoires, they are the situations that we kind of agree on as cultural actors are valid as moral causes. And I think one of the key points of our book is that the moral repertoires are not, you know, we we don't claim to opine or judge on whether the work that people claim is moral actually is moral. We're much more interested in actually how people claim what they're doing is moral and whether or not other people find ways to challenge them or say it's worthwhile. So, you know, we can imagine, you know, I think of a uh, a friend of mine who teaches uh, environmental sociology was telling me uh, the class had been going well. And it had been going so well that the students were now arguing with each other over who who had the more ecologically friendly water bottle, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and, you know, what I would tell you is that they had learned a new set of moral repertoires about, you know, what water bottles are good and why they're good and learning to apply them in sort of new ways. Now, whether any of these kids are, you know morally superior i mean i doubt it right (laughs) like they're 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 just kind of applying these new moral rhetorics in a way that's sociologically you know worth noticing and you know shy and i i think are very try to remain very agnostic about whether or not you know what people say is good and the good of their research actually is good as much as to say you know this is a core part of how sociologists talk to one another and that when you talk to sociologists about what they do It's almost taken for granted that if you study inequality, you want inequality to go away. That if you study, you know, social erasure, that what you want to do is bring those erased people back into the conversation. That the way we do sociology and talk about sociology, you know, besides all the arguments we have about standard errors and methodological technology and big data and all that other stuff involve some very core uh, moral commitments. And Shai and I ironically found as graduate students that you know senior faculty often didn't consider it this way. So we once emailed uh, a demographer to be on an early panel related to this topic. 
And they wrote back and they said, uh, no, thank you. I thought this email was about mortality, not morality. <laughs> uh, I don't feel myself to be an expert in morality in any way. I am an expert in mortality. And that was kind of it. And I was like, I mean, how can you not think about mortality, death, as a moral issue, as an issue with moral force? And so part of the you know early way we talked about the book was trying to get these repertoires more out in the open, more obvious, more clear kind of. And so that's why we focus, like Shai said, on meta-commentary, scholars talking about their research, right? Because this is one of the few times they kind of openly discuss, why is this a worthwhile activity? And when you study society, you know, you're supposed to say you're going to help society, right? And that's the goal. And I will just... I mean, it, as, oh, sorry. I, I will just add that one of the... One of the retorts that we've gotten at various points is like, oh, you know, that's all fair. That's all nice. But I actually I actually just want to do uh, facts. You know, I just want to do value neutral sociology. Uh, and for us, that is also a moral repertoire, right? Because, you know, and we, we, we're following up on, you know, decades of feminist theorizing on this, right? The Donna Haraway, Dorothy Smith, right? Who showed us that actually saying, you know, oh, I'm just objective, or I just want to do facts is itself a value-laden statement, right? So um, one of the things that we want to bring to light is that that's also, you know, we're not saying that people are less objective or more objective, but we're saying that they're using objectivity um, in debates as as a, a moral repertoire on its own. And it's, it's really great, actually, just picking up on on that point of you know all positions have some elements of, of moral repertoire in them the, the book i think really brings to life um partly because you, you really get the sense that you know you two have, have kind of lived um the experience of these moral repertoires you know on panels on conferences uh on i guess you know the sort of the sharp end of, of reviews coming back on on papers and, and stuff like this but but you do get the sense from the book of um, these are not abstract theorizations. There are, you know, examples of precisely the kind of language you would expect to see from, say, a reviewer or someone at a conference, you know, drawing on one of these moral repertoires. And I think the way, you know, to kind of um, make these things concrete for the listeners is to, to dip into the various examples that the book um, has got. You talked quite early on about uh, debates and controversies in the sociology of religion. Uh, the book moves on to talk about uh, things like race, and then there are questions of uh, cosmopolitanism, uh, gender, uh, fertility, these kind of things. And maybe we'll take uh, each of these in, in turn and sort of dip into them um, in, in a way that kind of really brings the book to life and, and makes yeah makes real the moral repertoires that you've introduced already. So. I suppose a kind of a quick <laughs> question is what's gone on in the sociology of religion over the past, say, 50 years? <laughs> Try and give a sense of how sociology of religion has debated whether we are a more or less kind of secular society and where different frames have, have kind of been applied to that. So, yeah. Um, how does this uh, play out with the sociology of religion? Yeah. So, uh the sociology of religion chapter, yeah, it's kind of a good, it's our kind of proto chapter, right? Uh, it, it has all, the rest of the chapters are kind of structured by how it works, and it's really about uh, religion. And it, you know, like like the rest of the chapters, it kind of does, yeah, it's like a, a short history of recent events in the sociology of religion, right? In a very kind of schematic, 
thematized way, right? And so the story we pick up on uh, is really like this story that uh, animated my, you know, interest in sociology early on was this question of secularization, right? Is secularization happening? Is the world becoming less and less religious? Um, and, you know, whatever. I was raised by new age people in the Pacific Northwest who would take me to weird bookstores. And, you know, like as a kid, I always wondered about this. And then, you know, eventually one day I stumbled into a sociology of religion class. And sure enough, I learned that there was this growing realization in the literature, you know, starting from the 60s uh, of the new age movements and the new religiosity. And, you know, not just that, but also the growth in uh, massive growth in evangelical Christianity in America throughout the 70s and the 80s. Right. Um, and this question of, well, is religion really dying or is it really growing? Um, and, you know, increasingly, you know, at some point starting in the 70s or 80s, there becomes this realization that while Weber and Marx and all these classic sociological theorists had told you that religion was doomed forever, uh, that religion seems to persist and it seems to be quite lively. Uh, Christians find new ways to come up with new Christianity that's quite exciting and gains lots of followers. Uh, so too with other religious streams, you know, new religious movements, but also uh, religious movements that are non-traditional for certain environments, right? And so, you know, I started studying this and getting really into this. And and really, you know, I think what we see over the past 50 years is this shift in the repertoire, right? Where the field has grown in part by, you know, kind of adopting different stances to the question of secularization. And so probably the most famous and, and the loudest uh, is what we call the rational choice approach to religion. This is an approach to religion that uh, thinks about believers really as um, a kind of limited good that different churches compete over. It's very uh, shaped by kind of American models and takes the idea of the, the separation of church and state uh, as a kind of metaphor for a market economy. So in the same way, you know, free market economists say we need to get the state out of government. You know, what the religious economies models people say is, well, when the, the United States, uh, you know, disestablished religion, uh, this led to a giant transformation of how religious occur. There's a, you know, opening of the market. And these theorists are kind of liberal in the classic sense, right? They, they believe that free religion is good for civic equality because it leads uh, to religious competition, religious innovation, religious engagement, religious involvement. Um, and this is really like, you know, the first kind of inklings I had of, uh, you know, how the scholarship in religion was adapting to the question of secularization. One argument was to say, well, you know, actually, there is a lot of religion out there in the world. Secularization isn't happening the way they tell you it is. In fact, there are all these groups who are innovating and competing. And for that to happen, we have to do things like defend religious liberty. We have to defend religious freedom, and we have to ensure that religious groups are allowed to compete equally. This was a, you know, a very powerful and pervasive argument in the sociology of religion, but comparative historical sociologists um, quickly kind of called a foul. Uh, and so that's kind of our second group. Our second group of scholars were a bunch of critics, um, people on the comparative historical mode um, who pointed to, first of all, pointed to the fact that 
you know, the United States wasn't the only place to disestablish religion. And uh, in lots of those places, religious competition didn't change in the way, the same way or the same shape, right? We didn't see these massive innovations, for instance, in Europe once religious toleration was instituted. But more broadly, that this approach was kind of a little parochial, right? That this approach, you know, while it used the United States as a key kind of key case example, it often overreached by trying to force everything into the U.S. model, by trying to make that model kind of the the core of all things. And so these these theorists really emphasized what we call the efficiency repertoire. This kind of stands in in some ways for what we think of as kind of the the, the scientific. Uh, repertoire, right? They kind of said, well, you need to think about all the possible cases. You need to include all the possible cases. So we can't just talk about religious regulation and its effect on religious change and religious innovation by looking at the U.S. We have to look at all the countries across all time and all space. And that conversation really kind of dug its heels in uh, to the point where you know, there was just these like long-standing debates in the sociology of religion between you know these these kind of civic-minded liberals who are interested in the rational choice model, and these kind of scientifically oriented comparative historical sociologists who said, no, no, no what we need to do is be comparing religious models uh, in a way that allows us to understand change in a new way. And really, like when Shai and I both started because we both work on religion. When we started working on religion, this kind of third era sort of had had started to take fold. And so we kind of describe this in the book as what we call the marketability repertoire. Uh, a whole generation of theorists kind of started saying, religion, is religion here to stay or not, is a question that we've dug into the ground. We can't get further on this question without thinking about new and more interesting ways of talking about religion. So one of these avenues was the lived religion approach, which was you know really strong amongst ethnographers and cultural sociologists. And so Shai and I were both kind of tuned into that. Uh, but we also saw this in a shift in like, you know, some of these rational choice modelers, for instance, um, started speaking openly and explicitly about uh, the need to clearly define religion uh, in the hopes of acquiring research funding and attention. And so we see, you know, kind of whole new streams in the sociology of religion emerge. You know, the sociology of religious nationalism has become, you know, quite a cottage industry in recent years. And in part, that's because people have kind of said, you know, those researchers specifically said, you know, the field of sociology of religion doesn't need to be oriented around this question of, is religion here to stay or is it going? But rather, what religion do we have now and what does that mean for our society? And so, you know, that's kind of a, the, the first glance you get. And, and what Shai and I kind of tell you is that each one of these maneuvers, each one of these, these uh, waves is exemplary of a, a different kind of maneuver. So the rational choice people kind of said, you know, you were told secularization, but that's all a lie. That needs to be, we need to get rid of that. We call that delegitimization, right? Where one theory is destroyed in the name of another. Then we'd say the the efficiency people who come next, these are reformers. They say, well, the, you know, the, the harsh critics are pretty good, but they need to kind of get, you know, kind of understand that the world's bigger than just their criticism. And the last group of people we call reconstitutionalists. They take fields that are diametrically opposed, where it seems like we've hit some sort of dead end, and find a new morality 
that says we can research this stuff for a different reason. In this case, that it brings research funds, that it's of interest to people outside of our parochial field, right? And each one of these we try to explore in different chapters with different case studies, but this one kind of serves as our our first kind of foray into it. And, you know, as, as with the rest of the chapters, many of these are kind of highly stylized, but the point is to highlight that you know, there's clear and open discussion during things like annual meetings, uh, you know, paper topics, paper sessions, annual review articles where people say, this is what the field should be doing, and this is how it contributes to a good society, right? One wave says, we are sociologists of religion. The way we contribute to the good society is by promoting religious freedom and creating information and knowledge about that and its effects on religious change. The next group says, no, no, no. Good sociology of religion helps a society by pr producing facts that are efficient, that are comparative, that are clearly organized, that are highly rigorous and scientific. And the last group says, no, 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 no. We should stop telling the society what makes good sociology of religion, and we should start trying to listen to them. We should start trying to work, make work that appeals to others, that fits into our current cultural climate and debates. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I mean, that, that's a fantastic overview, both of the field, but also um, of, of how you, um, I guess, take these kind of meta positions and synthesize them to, to give a sense of where the moral commitments come in. There are various other sort of examples we, we could get into through the book, but, but I think I, I want to concentrate on, on two because I, I think they're really good examples of, of both um, how the book goes beyond just kind of describing what's been going on with, with moral position taking and actually tries to say there are, uh, you know, possibly kind of ways, ways forward. And, and they're in the chapter on race and then on the chapter on, on gender and, and fertility. With the chapter on race, and, and maybe Shia, I'll come to you uh, on this one. One of the things that I found most interesting was you take uh, what is an incredibly kind of controversial and in some cases incredibly sort of depressing um, field or subfield uh, thinking about uh, racial inequalities um, and try and say how that field has, has really actually given rise to kind of new forms of, of solidarity as a result of the kind of uh, moral positions, but also the critique of some of the kind of big names in that field. And I'm interested to know precisely about that kind of sense of how solidarity gets built out of controversies and, and how, um, I guess, kind of moral repertoires could, can really move a field forward and, and, and possibly create something kind of positive um, from controversial positions. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we, we decided to devote a chapter to this because we um, we were we were really struck by the you know various claims made normally by conservative commentators that you know academia is just too um, PC and too um, I don't know afraid to really research controversial topics right and that's 
uh, that's a debate that came up around uh, uh, Charles Murray's uh, book, The Bell Curve, right, which make um, claims about uh, um, intelligence being tied to um, uh, race, race and genetics and so on, and um, kind of with with the argument being made that yeah, academia is just too PC to even uh, consider that. Um, and we wanted to show that actually, like, no, that's not, that's 100% not true. Um, that academia does develop areas that uh, we refer to as no-go zones, right? Areas where there's heightened sensitivities, where um, certain research practices are, um, um, deemed particularly harmful and, and like in a way excluded excluded from the discipline, but uh, that doesn't mean that we don't do um, research on controversial topics, such as um, you know the, the race and genetics or um, um, the culture of poverty. Uh, various studies, right? Studies that um, you know have have traditionally been uh, very controversial due to kind of blaming the victim. Uh, blaming poor people for, um, in a way, being uh, being poor. Um, but what we what we're trying to show is that um, scholars have engaged um, in in very nuanced ways about thinking about okay, what are what is the moral harm in um, you know accepting assumptions about um, let's say the culture of uh, um, underserved communi- communities. Um, kind of promoting poverty, um, what are the moral harms, and what are ways in which we can conduct research on those topics in an acceptable, um, in an acceptable ways. And then, as you mentioned, one of the ways that we're showing is, is um, kind of building solidarity and community around the engagement with these um, topics. And we see this work uh, in special issues and symposia, uh, in places where social scientists are invited to kind of revisit a controversial um, topic and then reimagine how research can be conducted in these realms in a new way. So, for example, um, edited, edited um, volumes by Mario Small and Catherine Newman and an edited uh, on guest AJS um, uh, issue by Peter Bierman, all kind of, and, and others, just invited scholars to bring together, you know, areas that nor- don't normally talk to each other, uh, in part because of the historical sensitivity around engaging with um, um, with uh, these topics, and really trying to figure out so what are what are ways to advance uh, in this field? What are ways to devise um, research on uh, underserved communities that you know looks at the, that obviously like engages with um cultural questions but at the same time does not reduce the poverty to simply uh to simply a cultural phenomenon so for example uh work like fred wary's uh research on payday um loans right which helps us kind of understand how racialized communities negotiate their socioeconomic hardships without um making the mistake of seeing the culture emerge their uh, poverty emerging from their culture um, and others. So these are some of the examples of, of attempts to kind of rethink and bring together areas in a new way to kind of address a topic that um, yes has 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 been very sensitive, but at the same time can be explored in new ways that actually um, that that actually not only not only circumvent the moral problem, but actually help resolve the real world 
issues uh, that they address. I mean, part, part of what you described there, this comes up more explicitly later in the book, is the idea of the kind of reconstitution uh, of, of a field or, or an area of study. Um, and, and, and Sam, maybe maybe you can talk me through this, but um, the, the example you've got is uh, debates over uh, fertility and, and its relationship to uh, work choices, to, to gender, um, and I guess kind of more broadly, actually, to, to various sort of moral positions related to things like choices to start families, choices to go to work, this kind of thing. And the reconstitution of a, of a field, I, I was sort of taken with that term partially because it's, you know, one of the sort of formal terms you use. But it also struck me that in, in some ways, many of the chapters are, are talking about um, attempts to kind of almost refound um, areas of, of study. And the discussion of gender fertility and, and work is an example of, of maybe where this reconstitution has been, I suppose, kind of successful. Um, so, so what's what's the sort of um, the story there, Sam? Yeah, so when we talk about reconstitution, yeah, I mean, I think you're right to pick up, you know, kind of the larger theme, and this is something hopefully we'll talk about a little bit later, is, you know, this question of pluralism, right? We all have these different values of how we do social science, and then, you know, there are these different moves to, yeah, kind of refound or reform or challenge the existing moral frameworks of what we do. And reconstitution, yeah, these are these efforts where, you know, there's usually a deadlock situation, you know, kind of two morally opposed arguments are stuck and somebody comes along, some group of researchers usually, and finds a new way of thinking about how do we proceed going forward. And so we focus on uh, the field of demographic research and, uh, and particularly its shift over the past 50 to 100 years or so. Um, and we really, we focus on two different kinds of questions. So one is about uh, breastfeeding outcomes and the history of breastfeeding research. Uh, if you're interested in that, you should check it out in the book. Uh, what I'll talk to you about a little bit is uh, these questions about fertility intention. So one of the things demographic research does early on in the 20th century is start asking questions about how many children you intend to have over the course of your lifetime. And this is seen as a new way of thinking about culture and demographic measurement, right? Up until, you know, starting with Malthus, uh, you know, like the main kind of moral metaphor for demography is the human as beast in some ways, right? Uh, and, you know, starting in the turn of the 20th century, uh, partially, you know, because of the changing cultural climate, you know, the Sangerites and the birth control movement is on the rise. Uh, we start seeing questions about, you know, how many kids do you actually want to have? How will you control your fertility? And, you know, Shai and I kind of spend this, you know, part of this chapter tracing how these questions get understood over time. So the first wave uh, of implementation of these questions is in uh, a study called the Indianapolis study. Uh, which kind of thinks about the question as a question of demographic pr prediction and control. How good of a measure is it when I ask you how many kids do you want to have? Can you actually predict that number of kids? And the first thing that these scholars do really is try to validate the measure. So they try to prove that there are situations where mothers can successfully say, I want to have three kids and I do have three kids. Uh, and in part, you know, they're thinking about these questions about demographic transition. Is the, the birth rate slowing? How can we understand that? Uh, but in part, they're also trying to validate a new scientific measure. And so really interestingly, one of the things we find is that 
the first study is actually limited to middle upper middle class white women specifically because they want to hit statistical significance because they want to prove that the measure is worthwhile so they want a, a demographic composition that varies as little as possible right and that's a you know a kind of weird way of thinking about scientific objectivity but that of course is what you know we try to show is that you know in this early period gaps between what you intend how many children you intend to have and and how many children you actually have what the do- demographers call achieved fertility that that gap between your intended fertility and your achieved fertility at first it's seen as an error something that science has to find a way to minimize or reduce or control right and you know the measure is always imperfect because you can't properly predict how many, you know, most of us can't even properly predict what kind of housing we'll live in in the future, right? Let alone how many children we'll have. Um, but there is this, you know, forceful effort. And then somewhere around the 1950s, a, a sudden kind of shift comes in the demographic uh, story. And, uh, you know, this is all actually uh, in part funded by uh, Rockefeller Research, which, you know, sends a research team out. Uh, to China, and and out there, all these researchers find these these mothers who want birth control, but they don't want birth control to limit their family on smaller than cultural numbers, but just to what is the culturally accepted number. So a big family uh, in these communities is three children. Mothers don't want birth control so that they can have one child. They want birth control so that they can have three instead of five, and. For various reasons, this becomes a kind of signal moment in the demography literature in which people start to recognize that the gap between intentions and outcomes or intentions and achieved fertility is actually shaped by access to birth control. And throughout the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, as people increasingly are documenting in a large secondary historical literature on uh, fertility control development. The UN, the federal government, huge expenditures are outlaid to both study and promote birth control globally as a means of understanding population dynamics, right? And demographers kind of cast themselves as the natural experts on fertility control and fertility control technologies. And, you know, the PAA becomes a center place for all these nonprofits that are working on fertility control globally. Uh, And the whole field becomes centered on this idea that, no, 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 the gap between intentions and outcomes is not about how good our science is. It's about how involved we are in policy, because when we're involved in policy, we can help make that gap shrink. We can help give women control over the number of births they have by promoting uh, policy, uh, notably like in what they call the global south, that promotes birth control and, and new forms of birth control. This this generation invents the IUD uh, in the hopes of creating a, a systematic and stable form of birth control that will help women take control over their, their reproductive lives. Now, in the 70s and the 80s, this literature again comes under these two kind of fields become kind of opposed, right? There's kind of one side of the literature that says what we need is better measures of fertility intentions, and that will give us a better sense of, you know, how to measure this thing, and we can make that measure stronger. There's a kind of another group of people saying, no, 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 we need more government funding so that we can support 
actual fertility control measures like the promotion of birth control. And these two are kind of warring, and it seems like there's sort of no way out uh, until a third group arrives. Um, that kind of argues very centrally what we need to take into account are local meanings uh, and local attitudes. And this is partially spurred by the activism uh, of women's health advocates like Bella Abzug, who go to the UN and at these UN meetings on population control and population development say things like, Asking how to control population without asking the mothers themselves is like an insane activity. They publish these articles, you know, these ads in the New York Times uh, of mothers, and it says, who, who better to understand population control across the world than the mothers who are having the children themselves, right? And this helps launch a whole nother wave that we see up until today, where the fertility literature and the demographic literature on the family is now really centered on how do women understand their fertility choices, their fertility intentions, their birth control options, and how do those local meanings help us to gain a better sense of what actual population policies are worthwhile and which ones are not? And so in this last phase, you see this effort to actually kind of keep both. Uh, there's an article we like, or I like a lot, we, we both like a lot, by uh, Jenny Trinitopoli and Sarah Yeepman. Uh, that proposes new measures of flexibility, fertility flexibility, questions about, okay, if I ask you your intentions, let's say you, you tell me you're going to have three children, what happens when I ask you right after, how flexible are, about, are you about that number? And it turns out people are really good at telling you whether or not they think they're going to have the number they predict. And so they advocate both expanding the surveys to include flexibility questions, something that we would have seen traditionally under the efficiency repertoire, the first repertoire, the one that saw uh, intentions as a question of measurement. And they also advocate that it allows them to better predict things like uh, take up of contraception, right? That when you say, oh, I'm more flexible, it turns out that you're also like a little more flexible how you use birth control as well. And so that speaks to the the concerns of the second group, right? But now it's all kind of reconstituted, reorganized around this new question of what does fertility control mean to mothers? How do mothers experience it? And how can we use that to help further these existing goals of, you know, kind of policy, you know, demogra informed demographic policy about population at the global level and demography as a, a quality science, right? And so we say the field has been reconstituted. It's been rebuilt. And in this way, you know, we do try to argue for kind of hopeful sociology, which is that, you know, sociology actually grows by adding moral repertoires, not necessarily jettisoning them entirely. Well, one of the things you mentioned, just as you were talking about that case study was, you know, people should read the book. And, and I think um, we, we've got, you know, a couple of really good in-depth and, and detailed uh, examples for, from you both. But I, I really want to stress, you know, the book is really rich and there are, you know, kind of numerous examples. You know, there's a lot of stuff about cosmopolitanism we, we, we've not sort of, you know, talked about or touched on. But but even in the uh, case studies we, we, we've talked about, there's a lot going on in, in the book in addition to what we've had a chance to kind of highlight and showcase in this podcast. To wrap up, I'm, I'm quite interested um Maybe I'll come to you, Chai, for the, la the last word. The, the book is really kind of, and I, I, I thought this was really valuable about about the book. You know, the book is not kind of saying we've solved this uh, issue, and you know, we're we're going to kind of 
make a final judgment about how it is sociology should um, position itself, the moral positions it should take, um, and you know how you might kind of solve debates um, where these moral repertoires come into play. And you know, as as we've already heard from from both of you, how uh, how this might be uh, done in, in different subfields, and you kind of pull out this idea of the idea of value pluralism being really important. And, and the kind of the thing you sort of caution against, even though it's not a final statement, is this idea of avoiding moral myopia. And I wonder to conclude, could you kind of unpack moral myopia uh, for me and talk about how value pluralism can be useful in the context of uh, what kind of good social science is? Yeah, so so you know, as you say, we're we're absolutely not um, making a judgment about which which moral repertoires are best. What should uh, uh, sociologists kind of adopt as their moral compass? Uh, <clears throat> but we are cautioning against um, um, sp- individual sociologists believing that there's only one right uh, repertoire to go with, um, and that's what we refer to as moral myopia. Right? In a sense, thinking, you know, I'm just going to focus on this one um, kind of way of evaluating sociology, right? Just the facts, just just based on the, the um, facts or just based on the uh, civic contribution and anything else is uh, invalid. Um, and the reason we, we draw on Isaiah Berlin's notion of uh, value pluralism is because that um, notion provides us with a, with a view of a society that actually celebrates uh, multi, uh, multiple ways of evaluating um, what is uh, worthy, what is uh, moral, uh, without falling e- either into the side of everything goes, you know, that, you know, basically no moral judgment whatsoever, uh, or to the side of uh, moral myopia. By thinking just that that there's just one value, and um, and you know we're we're also drawing on on uh, organizational sociologists like David Stark and and on uh, Michelle Amant's work, right, which show us that you know successful societies and organizations recognize multiple ways of excelling and of of valuing worth, and uh, ultimately if we if um, we we develop a culture of uh, valuing multiplicity, um, we will all be better off as, as, a, as a scientific field. This seems a bit kind of a mean question, given uh, the book you've written is, you know, such a sort of um, kind of programmatic um, contribution and, and ranges over so many fields. But where do you go kind of next with this? Uh, are you both going to kind of carry on uh, writing together? Are you going to do more stuff on uh, these questions of morals? Um, I, I don't know. Certainly when I finish writing book projects, I'm a bit like I'm finished with that. <laughs> Thank you. And I'll, I'll do something, something else entirely different. So, yeah, um, maybe we'll, we'll continue with uh, you, Shai, and come, come, come to Sam after that. But, yeah, what are you doing sort of uh, as your next project following this book? Yeah, so I have um, I have a second uh, archival project which um, kind of asks similar questions about student uh, controversies, right, the campus controversies, um, <clears throat> and how they historically um, change in terms of the types of like claims for justice that are being um, promoted. Um, and I'm looking at uh, historical controversies over the last fifty years. Um, where 
basic the, the basic questions, right? You know, how how are the ways in which students even thought it's appropriate to um, make a claim about you know another student group about a political issue on campus uh, transformed over time? Uh, and Sam and I are continuing to collaborate. We have. Uh, um, we have a project on uh, the, the sociological canon and contro- controversies over that um, and several additional uh, projects. Sam, I don't know if you want to. Yeah, yeah. Elaborate. I mean, so, yeah, Shai and I, you know, I think Shai and I have talked about this before, which is that this project's a little bit long term for both of us. We're, we're kind of stuck together now. <laughs> uh, in part because, you know, like a, I think a large part of the book is that if we could just get people talking more and more about what's moral about what they do. And we could think about that as central to what it is we do, that we could build something usable in terms of a, you know, like not a program that we design for sociology, but we can have discussions about what is this sociology activity? We'd be better suited and more prepared for, you know, kind of discipline-wide discussions about what it is we're up to and why we are organized and do the things we do. And so, you know, I kind of think about the book and then, yeah, Shai and I are going to write about the canon to think through about this problem more. And so, you know, we'll keep organizing sessions and doing silly things <laughs> to promote that. Uh, and then uh, beyond that, uh, I will be uh, returning to and finishing up my work, my dissertation work on uh, Puritanism in New England. So I'm super interested in uh, how the Puritans claim to be new Israelites. Uh, and I study that in grave, great detail. So that's like to finish up that project, I'm working on a book for that, trying to get that done. And then as that gets going, I'm starting a, a new project on uh, a more modern variant of the same phenomenon, the Black Hebrew Israelites. And so I'll be uh, trying to do ethnographic field work here in New York uh, with them as as time goes on.